Welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Have you ever wondered how long you're going to live? I always thought that my genetics would play the critical factor in determining when I'll kick it. But researcher Dr. Tony Eiton shows a very different picture. The single biggest determinant of longevity is your zip code. That's right. Just as they say in real estate, what matters is location, location, location. Well, it turns out the same is true if you want to live a long life. In the first half of the show, Dr. Tony Eiton will tell us about his discovery that within one county in California, there's a 22-year gap in life expectancy between rich and poor neighborhoods. We'll then hear from Suzanne Bohan, whose new book, 20 Years of Life, Why the Poor Die Earlier and How to Challenge Inequity, will share stories about how communities have turned around their fate by using data, people power, and tenacity. I first met Tony when he came to speak at EPA. I was blown away by the clarity of his presentation and the shocking nature of his conclusions. Dr. Eiton's primary focus includes health of disadvantaged populations and the contribution of race, class, wealth, education, geography, and employment to health status. Dr. Eiton is the Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities at the California Endowment, where he's leading a $1 billion investment in California's community health. Before that, Tony served as the health director for Alameda County. I asked Tony, how did his interest in community health begin? You know, I was in medical school from 1985 to 1989, working in Baltimore, Maryland, um, dealing with uh, the crack cocaine epidemic, uh, HIV. um, And we were, the medical school was located in an inner city. And I could see... Uh, that the social conditions were driving poor health outcomes. Yet in medical school, we talked about them almost as if they were biological. And that never squared with me. It was this weird kind of proposition that we were trying to treat social ills with pills. And I, I couldn't ever accept that as an approach to trying to provide health. And so when I trained in medicine and then subsequently worked a little bit in health policy and and got into public health, I still had in the back of my mind this question about, you know, are health disparities biological or are they essentially environmental? So how did you end up in California, Tony? You know, I gravitated west over time and ended up in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And in the San Francisco Bay Area, the, the, the primary counties are Alameda, Contra Costa, San Mateo, Santa Clara. But Alameda is one of the older ones, and it's got Berkeley, it's got Oakland in it. It's got a million and a half people, and it's huge. It's a large geographical territory that has both urban, suburban, and rural uh, communities within it. And it's uh, immediately across the bay from San Francisco. You worked in the Department of Public Health, and, and what were you seeing that kind of caught your interest. Yeah, so when you're the health officer and the director of health, you're the registrar of all births and deaths. And so one of the things that we saw was that there were certainly concentrations of poor health outcomes in certain parts of the county, primarily in the flatlands of Oakland, the flatlands of Berkeley. And what I was trying to understand, having been from Baltimore, was, okay, so what is it about the social environment that sort of drives these poor health outcomes? And because we had all these death certificates, as I said, 10,000 a year, and every single death certificate 
has what somebody died of, the age they were when they died, their race, ethnicity, and where they lived. And so you can take that data, and we did. We put together a database of close to half a million death certificates, and we looked at patterns of death in Alameda County over a period of 50 years and found this concentration of premature death in the same neighborhoods that our nurses were spending a lot of time providing services. So we set about trying to understand, well, what is it about these neighborhoods? What's happening in these places that is actually so injurious to people's health? And that's, you know, in essence, what set us off on our course of trying to construct a practice to bring health equity to Alameda County. What were you seeing in terms of disparity? Well, the really interesting thing is that when you set foot in any of these places, the first thing you notice is that every major system is pretty much offline. Transportation is inadequate. Housing is overcrowded, expensive. Uh, There's lacking sidewalks and sort of physical infrastructure. Parks are, you know, poorly maintained if they exist at all. There's generally freeways running to or through those communities. You don't have um, grocery stores. You have fast food places, corner stores. It's overtly obvious to the eye when you just sort of walk into the communities. And, and so trying to understand why in the city of Oakland, which lives, you know, you take a, a neighborhood in the flatlands or a neighborhood in the hills, they're under the same regulatory authority. It's the same city. You know, so it's the same parks department. It's the same, you know, land use decision-making agencies. It's, it's the same, you know, public works. Yet you see one part of the city managed in a completely different way than another part of the city. What did you find were the causes of this disparate treatment? You're forced to conclude that the difference here is that people are undervalued in these places because they don't have power. They're not seen as having sufficient control over how decisions are made. So they're ignored and they're neglected. And that has adverse impacts, not just on their physical environment, but also on the social environment. People start to feel, they internalize that devaluation, and it it actually changes their physiology. That's what we've come to understand over the years, that it's not just the environment. The environment gets under the skin and changes how people's actual physiology operates. What were the actual outcomes that you saw through the death certificates? Well, when we did the analysis of the death certificates, and it it was something that to my knowledge, had not been done before. We wanted to actually put it on a map and show people in their neighborhood how long they could expect to live. And when we did it, we found dramatic differences. I mean, we mapped the entire county at the census tract level, and there are about 150 census tracts in Alameda County. Um, There are about 10,000 people in each one. And we found uh, life expectancy differences, even within the same city in Oakland, of 22 years uh, between, you know, a neighborhood in the flatlands and a neighborhood in the hills, which is you know, the equivalent of, you know, living in Sweden or living in Afghanistan. You're finding the socio-ecological equivalent of, you know, a war-torn country in Alameda County, as well as some of the highest standard of living in the developed world, within miles of each other. Those results, when you looked at them, must have been just, like, hard to even digest. I think at some level we expected to find difference. We didn't expect to find it on the order of decades, multiple decades of shortened life. That was shocking and still is shocking to me. And, you know, we thought that it was just Alameda County or there was something particular about this place. And we started looking around the country and we found, you know, similar, even bigger differences on the East Coast and in, in, uh, 
uh, Cleveland and in Baltimore and Philadelphia. I mean, we found like, you know, 28, 30 years of life expectancy difference in the same city. Every city we looked at, and we looked at probably about 15 different cities, did the same analysis. We've, the smallest gap we found was about 15 years. So it was like range from 15 to 30 years. This is the American pattern. You find this in every major city, dramatic differences in life expectancy that reflect very different opportunity circumstances in the same city. We used to think that it, it was a genetic code, and you describe it as really this is a zip code has a, a predeterminant impact on, on these outcomes. Yeah, so, and I went to Johns Hopkins Medical School, and we were taught essentially that these were biological differences, although there was virtually no evidence of that. It was just basically assumed that differences of this nature had to be somehow related to genetics. And um, over time, as people have looked at that question, they found that there is no basis for that assertion whatsoever. Um, yet it still persists uh, in medical school. People had to get it out of their heads that this was about the people and start thinking about it as the environment. When we looked at the causes of death that explain this 22-year life expectancy difference in Oakland, it wasn't violence, it wasn't HIV-AIDS, it was heart disease and lung cancer and uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema. These were the same diseases that were killing wealthy people in Alameda County, they were just killing low-income people earlier in their lives. So there wasn't any magical disease differential that was happening that could explain the, you know, that this huge gap in life expectancy. So, you know, understanding that the environments are different is the first step. Then trying to understand how does the environment change physiology, that was the next step. And, and the science in this area has exploded. A lot of people have these stories and it's sort of an American sort of notion that, you know, your grandmother grew up in the worst environment and walked uphill to school both ways every day without shoes and had to dodge bullets or God knows what. And now she's the CEO of Xerox. And if she could do it, anybody can do it. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that is actually true, but it's very unlikely. And that's the problem with our thinking is that we seem to not understand this notion of odds or likelihood that, yeah, sure, your grandmother could do it, but how likely is it that anybody else could do it? And shouldn't we be in the business of trying to make it more likely that other people's grandmas could do that too? The second thing that you know became really important to understand is that it's not just low-income people, that we all experience stress in our life. And then as you look at how stress changes the body, you see that stress is it's interpreted by the body as a threat. So when you're walking around in a low-income community and you see essentially all of these risks and you see very little opportunity, very little in terms of resources, you essentially are interpreting a constant threat to your well-being. How is that stress internalized? That constant threat to your well-being basically is perceived by your brain, your hypothalamus, which sends a message to your pituitary gland, which is a gland at the base of your brain, which sends a message to your adrenal glands, which sit adjacent to your kidneys, and they release cortisol and a, and a group of other hormones as well, but stress hormones. And when you're constantly confronted with risk and see very little by way of resources, you basically are constantly bathed in cortisol. And when you're constantly bathed in cortisol, it has an adverse effect on all of your physiology. 
it makes you more prone to cardiovascular disease, makes you more prone to infection. It changes your brain. It makes you more prone to diabetes, independent of what you eat and your behavior. So this is happening even if you're exercising and not smoking and eating well. You're still having these physiological changes happening to you through your essentially your stress response. And that stress response can also change your genetics. It changes the way that your genes express themselves. And strangely or sadly enough, you can also pass this on to your children. So the environment, we used to think of this whole notion of nature versus nurture. And, you know, for a long time, we thought that a lot of the differences we see in populations were due to nature as opposed to the environment, which is nurture. We're, we're now recognizing that nature influences nurture, nurture influences nature. So that was like a false distinction to think of essentially genes versus the environment, that they interact and they're, they interact powerfully. So we now have to start thinking about how the environment in and of itself is actually changing your genetics. So in a place like Alameda County, as you mentioned, there are also external environmental factors. So you have two freeways, you have a lot of PM 2.5, PM 10, very fine particulate matter. You have um, hazardous waste facilities, recyclers, um, indoor lead paint, mold. So there's there, there are actual physical um, attributes of the environment that are negative that are also on top of that stress impacting the communities. Yeah, absolutely. You've got all of these noxious sources of pollution. Um, they were cited there, um, and they continue to be cited there, largely because in the polit they're political decisions that make these land use um, site decisions happen. So if you decide, and we were involved early on in my career, in trying to um, change a decision around a uh, medical waste incinerator facility um, in East Oakland. And similarly, um, another temporary um, power plant that was going to be placed in another um, low-income community. And the decision-making behind where to site these things takes into consideration essentially the political power of the community. We used to laugh and say, you know, would you ever see a medical waste incinerator sited in Piedmont? Uh, Piedmont, which is the, one of the wealthiest communities in North America, and it's in the heart of Alameda County. And it's laughable. You could say that and people would laugh. And then you would ask them the question, well, would you see it in East Oakland? And people would say, hmm, yeah, I could see that. And then you have to ask yourself, why is that? Why wouldn't we put a medical waste incinerator in Beverly Hills? Because we perceive those people as having power and therefore being more valuable and more influential over the political process. So in our minds, we recognized that we had to build the power of people living in places like East Oakland so that they could essentially harden their community against these kinds of threats, which were basically political threats to their well-being. So that's, you know, in essence, um, these environmental decisions um, that lead to essentially an added burden of ill health on the backs of low-income people that's what environmental justice is about. It's about recognizing that we have to share that risk of injury from these land use decisions. Tony, it feels like the environmental justice movement in California has done a really effective job of bringing attention to these health inequities. Well, we actually have to give a lot of credit to the environmental justice movement and the pioneers in the environmental justice movement because they taught us essentially how to structure a health justice movement. 
And that's what we're, you know, trying to help construct today in California. It's this notion that democracy is good for your health. And our, part of our goal is to optimize the political power of low-income communities so that they can participate in the decision-making that leads to the allocation of resources, both beneficial resources as well as those noxious resources. What we've learned more recently is that health is entirely contingent on the quality of democracy, particularly for low-income populations. And there's very good data now that suggests that even wealthy populations, regardless of color, are in worse health than their, you know, their similar counterparts in other countries of the world because we carry more stress. We're one sort of job loss away from losing our health insurance and possibly our housing and our ability to fund our kids' colleges. Other countries don't have that kind of stress. There's universal health insurance. Um, college is highly subsidized so people can afford to go regardless of their you know, income. Um, they get paid sick leave. There are a whole variety of policies that buffer against the sort of inevitable kind of crisis that happens in somebody's life. We don't have any of that. So even if you're relatively well-to-do, you carry around in the back of your head this worry that if something goes wrong, you could lose everything. That contributes to this chronic stress, which we believe actually reduces the quality of health of even our wealthiest um, communities in, in this country. Tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing in rural California um, around the opioid epidemic. The epidemic of premature white mortality in this country since about the late 1990s has been huge. We're talking now about half a million excess deaths, which is on par with the entire U.S. HIV AIDS epidemic. I mean, the scale of unnecessary death is enormous. It's one of the biggest epidemics we've seen in the United States ever. And the most interesting thing about it is it seems to be somewhat uniquely impacting white rural Americans. Not exclusively, but overwhelmingly. So we looked at California. California's got 58 counties. 28 of them have accelerating white mortality rates, primarily in the northern part of the state, um, but also in the Central Valley. Of those 28 counties, 25 of them voted for the current president. In our estimation, this is the first time you're seeing an epidemiologic phenomenon actually driving a political phenomenon. Um, that sense of loss, of stature, of privilege, if you will, people are, are expressing a sense of a loss of that vision, a loss of control over their future in that way. And they're seeing their hands slip from the rungs of the ladder of the American dream. And we believe that that is at the heart of what's happening uh, across the United States, but also in California. When we looked at the data, we saw that the causes of death that were driving this phenomenon were three. One was um, drug overdoses, primarily opiates, but there was related stuff uh, with methamphetamines and some other drugs. Uh, the second was suicide. Suicide was almost as high as the opiate um, overdoses. And then third was alcohol, alcohol-related um, organ disease, primarily liver failure, but also heart disease, uh, pancreas disease, a whole host of things that kill you just from drinking too much alcohol. So all three of those things are self-inflicted, if you will. These are people doing things to themselves, which we believe is, is clear evidence of a sense of despair, a sense of a loss of hope. 
where people are trying to essentially manage their pain and their sense of loss with substances or, in the worst case scenario, with suicide. When you look at uh, Hispanics, you do not see this phenomenon. In fact, you see a dramatic uh, decrease in uh, Hispanic mortality across the country and in California um, or immigrant Asians. Immigrant populations have some of the best health status in this country. And, and as they acculturate and become more American, their health actually gets worse. So America is not good for your health. And we have to understand why that is. A lot of people know uh, people who've died of opiate overdoses or suicide. Um, they generally attribute it to decline in economic fortunes. What specifically are they referring to? You know, the lack of some of the core industries that used to buttress rural America in general. So timber, mining, fishing, um, construction. Um, they point out that, you know, these industries have declined and their way of lives have been destroyed. Um, they blame, to a large extent, environmentalists. Um, they see, you know, uh, environmentalism as a threat to their well-being and their economic well-being. And they don't trust government. They're a little bit more trusting of their local government. They tend to trust the military, and they tend to trust the church. When you talk to folks about in these communities that were hopeful, what, what were their reasons for hope, and, and do they point to a direction out of this epidemic? Well, we're still looking at this. We feel like there is opportunity to kind of rebuild or, or strengthen the California identity uh, that includes all of California, including rural California, um, and you know, creating this sense of a future uh, that's an inclusive future where we can all work together, where we, we do talk about race and racism. This is one of the things that we've studied and we recognize that you, if you don't talk about those things, people kind of like default to their assumptions. You have to break through that and you have to be explicit about talking about racial inequity and the history uh, that has brought us to where we are. But we also have to recognize that we're all affected by this and our future has to get past that past, if you will. After a word from this week's sponsor, Boll & Branch, I talk with Suzanne Bohan about innovative community projects that target the health inequities we just discussed with Dr. Tony Eiten. Every four years, an event brings people together from across the globe. That was after Mexico's incredible 1-0 victory over Germany last week. Soccer fans around the world are experiencing the joy, frustration and even tears produced by the beautiful game. Whether you've lost sleep thinking about your team's odds or you're exhausted from waking up at 6am to catch the game live, we can agree the World Cup does not afford much rest. And what's worse, I had to dispense with my 1966 England World Cup comforter because it just got too itchy. In fact, the only thing scarier than waiting for England's last goal against Tunisia is the formaldehyde and other chemicals found in your typical store-bought sheets. When you go to bed, you're likely lying on unregulated turf containing cancer-causing chemicals. If we're going to make it to England lifting the 2018 World Cup trophy on July 14th, we're going to need some serious rest from the stress. That's why I just got some Bolland Branch sheets. 
Boland Branch is a family business that sells 100% pure organic sheets that contain zero toxins. Boland Branch will bench those nasty chemicals and put your health and sleep back in play. Boland Branch sheets are fair trade, meaning they buy the cotton directly from the farmers who they pay a real living wage. So if you don't want to forfeit your health and sleep to teams of relentless chemicals, go to bollandbranch.com. To get you started right now, as listeners, you get $50 off your first set of sheets at bollandbranch.com, promo code PODSHIP. Go to bollandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code PODSHIP. For a winning night's sleep, go to bollandbranch.com, promo code PODSHIP. And now back to this week's Podship Earth episode on how your health is linked to your zip code. Suzanne Bohan is a health and science journalist with an expertise in covering health inequities. From 2000 to 2012, she covered science and health issues for the largest newspaper chain in the San Francisco region, the Bay Area News Group. Bohan has won nearly 20 journalism awards, including the 2010 White House Correspondents Association Edgar Poe Award for the series Shortened Lives, Where You Live Matters, on why life expectancies vary so dramatically between nearby neighborhoods. She previously worked for the Sacramento Bee. In her latest book, 20 Years of Life, Suzanne examines how communities are fighting back to achieve positive health outcomes for all. I start by asking Suzanne how she started reporting on this issue. I was a health and science reporter with the Bay Area News Group, and it was in 2009 that I co-wrote a four-part series called Shortened Lives, Where You Live Matters the toll of chronic stress, uh, and also the lack of basic resources for healthful living, such as safe parks to play in, places to walk, a nearby grocery store. Many of these communities, it's miles to get to a, a good grocery store. And I learned that uh, the California Endowment was starting a 10-year initiative called Building Healthy Communities in 2010. And it was going to be attacking these very issues of how to create better social conditions and physical conditions in communities in order to improve lifespan. The challenge always in writing about this topic is people will say, well, they're just making bad choices. They're irresponsible. This is America. Everybody has the right and the ability to make the right choice and live a healthy life. But I have spent a lot of time in these communities and it's not hard to understand how this toll of disease and, and shortened lives uh, actually begins to accrue. One man told me he doesn't feel even safe walking to that liquor store to get some packaged food at night. And they don't want to, you wouldn't dream of stepping outside and jogging or walking for exercise. Uh, there's packs of dogs that roam around in these neighborhoods. That's very common. That's a problem in these neighborhoods. And of course, just random you know, violence is, is higher there. So you realize they simply don't have the same options for making healthy choices. The stress effect creates incredible disequilibrium uh, in our physiology that over years and years has a very profound effect and triggers diseases such as cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and so on. 
Tell us about the studies in your book that show that individuals at the bottom of the employment ladder experience more stress than the captains of industry. The Whitehall studies out of London and the UK, uh, Sir Michael Marmot. Um, and what he found was he studied uh, civil servants. He found this massive difference in life expectancy and disease rates uh, from the doorman up to the, the top executives. And what that shows is it it punctures a hole in this idea that it's bad choices. Because one, it's decade after decade, this repeats itself. All of these people have health insurance. So it takes away the myth that healthcare will come in and solve this. Because really, we're talking about preventing disease, whereas healthcare is about patching things up after they happen and trying to manage costly chronic conditions. They also have steady paychecks. They're not homeless. They have enough to bring you know, decent food on the table for the most part. But it, it's a really clear example of the toll of chronic stress and a lack of control in your life hmm. on health and longevity. Yeah, I found it shocking. In your book, you you cite this figure that by increasing graduation rates by 10 percentage points, we could prevent 400 murders and over 20,000 assaults in California alone each year. That was just startling to me. One, that there's such a gap in graduation rates. And two, that the impact of doing that, what seemed like a relatively small change, can have such a big impact. The point of that is how high school graduation rates are so stabilizing on on so many levels. And what I'm describing there is a campaign to pass school discipline reform in California. I really concentrate on trying to find the people who are doing constructive, meaningful, powerful work rather than always reporting on the problems, because I think we all get a little tired of hearing about the problem. And we know it's out there. It's important to know the details of why things happen. But you also, by knowing why, then you can find the intervention points for fixing it. Um, So this campaign for school discipline was one of the early major successes out of this 10-year Building Healthy Communities campaign. And it was completely mobilized by the people. And when kids are not graduating, they actually have a five-year loss of life expectancy right there. It's all about mobilizing political activism and community power to drive the conditions that the people living there know they need to live better. And this school discipline reform campaign is a perfect example because it came from the community. They brought it up to the highest levels of Sacramento, the education policy expert, the school superintendent of schools. And in the book, it seems like all the bureaucrats didn't even know this was an issue. None of them knew it was a problem. And so the California Endowment was able to pay, speaking of data, pay for studies to get a, a handle on what were the, what was going on with suspensions. And they came out with the most startling statistic anybody could have imagined, which is that California suspends, or at that point was suspending more children, more high school students every year than they were graduating. And that became the rallying cry for this campaign. So now there's 11 new laws passed. And uh, the last tally in 2016, the state released data showing suspensions are down 360,000 per year in California. And uh, high school graduation rates are up about 8%. So that's a direct effect on health and longevity and economic prosperity. 
there's an under one underlying message in here. Philanthropy needs to support change, not charity. There are so many opportunities for philanthropy to get into these distressed communities and support political activism, support community organizing. They paid for polling. They paid for data. So that's where philanthropy can help. But what I like about your book is you're saying the benefits are also not um, divided equally. And if we could get more benefits for communities like parks, we could move the needle. Right. Exactly. What's interesting is you talk across the political spectrum and people think this is reasonable, that these areas should have parks, these areas should have healthy retailing, because oftentimes there's a lack of healthy retailing because some wider regional legislative body has zoned that area to allow a great number of liquor stores and selling tobacco and liquor and lottery tickets, but they would not zone wealthier areas to have those. Or fast food outlets, drive-through fast food outlets would be banned in one area but allowed there. Uh, or freeways allowing diesel trucks would, would not be allowed in wealthy areas, but would in the poorer areas. The story I really liked in the book, um, you say, when Terry Stanley was 17, he joined a campaign to build a skate park in City Heights, a low-income neighborhood in central San Diego. It was the City Heights, which is a neighborhood in San Diego that's been historically uh, low-income and they did not have a skate park. Uh, and yet there was vast amounts of parkland and skate parks elsewhere in San Diego. And finally, they got fed up when one of their friends uh, was injured in a skating accident, skating on the sidewalk. Another one, Terry Stanley, actually got into trouble with the law because he was skating at an elementary school when he was not supposed to be. So these kids were having running into scrapes with the law because they were skating where they're not supposed to be because they had no other option. About 50 youth said, we want a skate park in City Heights. And so the leaders, the adult leaders there said, okay, let's work on that. And the kids really designed the campaign, and they went to well over 100 planning department meetings, city meetings, and they kept pressing, pressing, pressing. They had a number of you know, initial defeats and setbacks, but they kept pressing on it. And finally, the staff and elected officials were so impressed with these kids' determination that they really turned around and started supporting them. And they brought in about $5 million in grants one just opened in January, 19,000 square foot one. It's Fantastic. a direct result of these 50 kids' determination. Um, but this is also where philanthropy helped because the endowment paid for what's called a health impact assessment of having a skate park in City Heights, meaning you describe all the health benefits of having a skate park, which is kids learn cohesion, they're physically active, they learn new skills and coordination, uh, they're off the street, and so on. So uh, that is actually finally what swayed the city council. It was a really tight vote um, to support it, because a lot of people didn't want the skate park. You also go up to Northern California to meet the Yurok tribe up by the Klamath River. I spent time with the Yurok and was really inspired by your reporting on how they're rebuilding community through reconnecting with nature. That's a unique story up there. They had a significant job losses when the logging industry faded away, when all the old growth was cut, um, and also the fishing industry scaled way back due to overfishing uh, and other conditions. 
Um, but also the Yurok tribe is there, which is California's largest tribe with about 5,000 members. So it's unique in that there's never been a native tribe, to my knowledge, involved in this wide-scale, what they call community change initiatives, to try to uh, support political organizing. The Yurok voted to bring back controlled burns on their forest land. That completely took everybody by surprise in this initiative. The California endowment leadership community, nobody had really thought about that. But the, for the Native Americans, that was the key to restoring their health and giving youth uh, something, you know, uh, restoring their ability to connect back to their ancient culture, to bring back foods that they eat. They needed to have these burns to have basket weaving material like hazel sticks. They're bringing back huckleberry. It's improving the health of the acorn crop. And so all these benefits have accrued. It was financed initially by the foundation, but now it's 100% run by the Yurok tribe. I also quote a Native American scholar in there who says, of course, we. it's the Native tradition that your your health is course connected to the health of your community. Whereas for us in this individualized sort of ethic we have, you're kind of, uh, you know, you're an island and you're responsible for yourself. On Podship Earth, we focused on the plight of people in Imperial, Coachella, San Joaquin and the Sacramento Valley and their lack of access to drinking water. And tell us a little bit about the relationship between democracy and getting people elected to water boards and how that's changed some of the dynamics in terms of access to healthy drinking water. A huge number of people on the eastern side of Coachella Valley, which is the other end is Palm Springs and all the resorts and golf courses, which have all the water they need. Um, but this other side, they were living in trailer parks. They were pulling from groundwater that was contaminated with arsenic and chromium-6. And so these people who were really, you know, very low income already were having to buy piles of bottled water uh, to, in, to drink, to wash their hands, to even do their dishes. And it was an incredible way to live. And, and the water district had given up, said, sorry, there's just impossible for us to get a main uh, water line out there. And they, everybody accepted that as the status quo. This initiative also works on is taking the nonprofits that are already working in the community and having them collectively work together to set one goal rather than working in silos and competing for the same grant dollars. And what they just realized is they needed representation for that poor community on the water district board. It had been white men for most of its uh, existence, for decades. Um, and so they managed to, with a lawyer sending them a letter saying the water district was in violation of the state's Voting Rights Act by not having it by district. And the water district immediately agreed, probably realizing they wouldn't prevail. And there, for the first time, there was a Hispanic member of the water district board. That led to the creation of a disadvantaged communities task force. <coughs> which led to pressure to get a water main out there. And finally, people said, oh, we actually can do this. So what they had always said was impossible now was seen as possible. And they are making major strides in getting all manner of fresh water and clean water to that community. But it's also driving statewide change because of the success 
of what's happened in Coachella Valley. Suzanne, what are the big lessons that you took away from the successful community building campaigns? This sort of collective action is like barn raising. It's the tradition that we've always respected and revered in this country of neighbors coming together to help neighbors. And so ultimately, it's about saying people and giving people in these distressed areas that have lacked good schools, safe parks, walking areas, healthy food retailing, giving them voice so that their needs can be heard and that they finally have a seat at the table when the decisions are made as to how to allocate public resources and how to pass policies that are equitable and health promoting. What did you find when when you did research into how Democrats and Republicans view this issue? What bridged both sides was the agreement that there needs to be the same opportunity to be healthy in poor communities and everywhere in this nation, that that's a reasonable request, a reasonable position to take, that we all should have an opportunity to be able to safely exercise in our communities, to feel safe in our neighborhoods, to be able to easily access affordable, healthy foods. What are some things that they can do in their community to replicate the successes that you chronicle in your book? I try to put in some instructive steps on really the nuts and bolts of this. You've got to get people together. You need numbers. And you've got to be very, uh, have high quality information. You've got to do good research and identify a target, identify what you want, and provide comparative data of we don't have it, but this area does, and here's the benefit they get. And then don't give up. What I took away from this week's episode was how indelibly the inequities of American society have been hardwired into nearly every facet of our collective lives. As Tony said, in one single county, you can either experience life as if you were in Sweden or as if you were living in war-torn Afghanistan. That your zip code can add or detract 22 years from your life on the planet is so beyond shocking. The $1 billion project that Tony is leading for the California Endowment and that Suzanne covers in her book not only shines a light on these inequities, but as importantly shows us that through data, community organizing and gaining a seat at the table, we can start to rewire the system so that all Americans have the opportunity to be healthy. Next week, we explore the ancient marble industry. More than $3 billion of stone is brought into the U.S. each year for our bathroom sinks, hotel lobbies, and kitchen countertops. I talk to marble dealers in San Francisco and then travel to the home of Michelangelo in Italy to talk with activists worried about the impacts of the marble industry on their beloved mountains. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld. You'll never look at your zip code the same way again. Have a great week.